to do the thing? Yeah. You want you want to like learn and get learnt? Yes. <laughs> learn and get learnt. That's that's what we do here. I I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go. Okay. Him. <laughs> Hello and welcome to speaking for the memes. How do you do, fellow kids? TikTok, <laughs> am I right? <laughs> oh no. I don't like right? that. Okay, yeah, no, we're speaking for the trees. It's an environmental science podcast. We are not, uh, oh shit, what's his name? Steve Buscemi with, with a skateboard going, how do you Steve do, Buscemi. fellow kids? Buscemi? Buscemi? Is that how I you say it? I, I don't think I said that right. I said, I'm saying it like sashimi, and that's probably not it. <laughs> I don't think, I think it's Buscemi. Anyway, <laughs> we are two environmental, we're not environmental scientists, we're environmental engineers, but like, anyway, we're, we're qualified. Uh, my name's Ellie, that's Lauren. Hello. Hello. And it is season two here on Speaking for the Trees. We're rolling out some changes to try to make it easier for us to make content for you. Uh, we have in our notes that we bought mic stands because we were like, sure, certainly we will have bought mic stands by the time we record this. <laughs> I bought a mic stand. It doesn't fit my microphone setup. And Lauren has not bought a mic stand. So we're doing bad. <laughs> Jokes. Well, oops. <laughs> <laughs> we have our we have our reasons for it, which are not worth getting into. It's not interesting. Reason but, number one, we are lazy. Yeah, fair. <laughs> but yeah, no. Hopefully the audio will be slightly less shit because we're learning how to record, actually. Yeah, we're we're environmental people. We're not audio engineers. Anyway, uh what are we talking about today, Lauren? Well, we are uh starting with something nice and cheerful to start off the season. Which mm-hmm. is to say, wildfires. I could not. When we wrote this, I could not construct a joke that wouldn't be super distasteful. Because wildfires are awful. Uh, neither of us are drinking anything interesting because we're ladies. We're, it's, it's 3 p.m. It is 3 p.m. here. So we're just, <laughs> just going to move s- on. You just, you're just going to say we're ladies and that's it. <laughs> we are ladies who are not drinking at 3 p.m. I don't know yeah. where I was going with that. Uh, I guess I have some yummy tea I'm trying. It's a uh, hazelnut banana situation. It's very tasty, and I will be buying... It's a sampler, and I will be buying a full thing of it, I'm sure. I'm drinking but, coffee with a white chocolate raspberry creamer in it. You know what? This is interesting. I'm glad we included it. <laughs> <laughs> I think drinks are interesting. Anyway, <laughs> it sounds good, honestly. I wish I could still drink coffee drinks with any amount of caffeine in them rip anyway wildfires what are they uh (laughs) (laughs) segue time it is uh i wrote movement one because i didn't know what to write so in a sentence uh wildfire is an out of control fire in a natural area like a forest um they tend to be very destructive because they are literally made of fire believe it or not over one million yeah wow (laughs) Over 1 million acres of the United States forest, which so not including grasslands here, burn per year. 1 million acres just of trees. Oh, that's yeah, a lot. It's a lot. That's, it, it's a lot. That's just the United States. I'm assuming this is like on average and not counting like really like the big boys. The, I believe yeah, like that's the wildfires that kind of count as like a natural disaster almost. I don't hey, know. Hey, we're going to talk about those. Okay. So. Just out, of, just out of curiosity, uh, what percentage of wildfires do you think are started by humans, Lauren? Oh, uh, 
Hopefully you haven't looked already. Uh, I did not look. I, I good, saw good. that there was a question for me and I like immediately didn't look. Uh, like That professional is 60%? Oh, that's a good guess. Uh, it is higher. It's actually 90%. So that's not <laughs> ideal. Uh, <laughs> it's so high. Uh, 90% of uh, wildfires are indeed started by humans. But there are naturally, co- uh, and you can guess what those are, cigarettes, uh, out-of-control campfires, people having um, ridiculous gender-conforming bullshit parties for their unborn children. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's all I have to say on that. I think it's dumb. Uh, there are naturally caused wildfires, though. Um, lightning is one cause, obviously, but there is another interesting cause I thought I'd touch on, which is just composting and i don't mean like human composting i mean like the regular process of composting in mother nature so if a bunch of materials like twigs and leaves eventually uh keep piling up it can act like a compost pile which uh if you don't know anything about composting basically it generates its own heat because there's so much organic material just kind of clumped together and as as the stuff decomposes and sometimes it just gets so hot that it actually catches fire on its own like spontaneous combustion but not really that's, Which I thought was crazy, and I wanted so to include interesting. it. Right? So sometimes wildfires will just happen, because that's just how um, decomp- decomposition of organic material works, which I thought was super cool. So you mentioned, like, extreme wildfire events. Not by that name, but you did touch on it. Extreme wildfire events are on the rise all over the world. I'm sure you can uh, think back and just name three wildfires in the past couple of years. There's the Australian one. There's the one in California that caused all the YouTubers to go on about it. <laughs> that's, Which that's California one? Exactly. There's, there's been multiple Australian ones. Uh, so yeah, it's been, it's been on the rise, uh, instances of these fires. These, uh, extreme wildfire events aren't as common, but they have incredibly destructive potential, even in parts of the world that are prepared for them. Like you would think in the United States, Uh, Because we have this wildfire suppression policy that our government developed in the late 1800s, you'd think that we'd be, like, ready for it. But because they are so destructive, (laughs) we're not. Especially because that policy we developed in the late 1800s is actually causing our wildfires to be more extreme. Basically, some fires are a natural part of the ecosystem. They're, They're the cleanup. Some fires are... A natural part of the ecosystem, they clean out the stuff on the forest floor every so often, like a Roomba. They're, mm-hmm. they're nature's Roomba. <laughs> um, but when we started putting out every fire that we saw, we let that underbrush grow like crazy. So normally that stuff is cleared out by the wildfire, but now it's just layering on top of itself over and over again. So when a wildfire yeah. eventually does happen and say someone has a stupid gender reveal party because they care too much about their kids' genitals, oh my God cool it with those um it's a lot more fuel that the fire can burn through because the uh regular smaller fires haven't cleared it out making which makes the fire that results way hotter and way more extreme yeah this is gonna get brought up again this idea yeah it's a environmental science and land management 101 this is like the first thing you you get to your environmental science class in high school and the guy's like listen Our current situation is bad. Here's why. So extreme wildfire events are not only huge, but they're also unpredictable. I I already don't know enough about fire science, and I honestly didn't do too much research on it because I just, 
I would need someone to sit down with me and talk me through it. But basically, your standard normal ass fire tends, they all tend to act the same way. So firefighters know what to do and they can get ahead of it and outsmart it. Extreme wildfire events like the ones in California and Australia spread over land in ways that don't make much sense to firefighters. They burn really hot and they spread really quickly. They also reach their maximum destructive potential pretty quickly, like within hours of the start of the fire. Oh, yeah, that's that's extremely soon. It's hard to form a response fast enough. If you have like a really remote fire in like uh, what's a really like Nevada, let's say, because that's the most remote thing I can think of. Um, and you you're like, there's just this huge fire and it, it gets even bigger within like three hours. How are you going to get all the fire trucks from like Reno and all those places? And how are you going to respond to it? It's just it's so instantaneous. Well, I mean, with the wildfire, I don't really know. <laughs> this is like way outside of the scope but like i don't know what the response looks like because like you would not i don't i assume you would not have like a fire truck because that's then true yeah you'd be trying to hook that up to a non-existent fire hydrant because you were in the wilderness that's a good so, point that i did not think of when i said that <laughs> so, <laughs> so i think it would be more i i, I don't really want to talk out of my ass here yeah, like, it would be a different response than what I said. Let's move on. So, <laughs> helicopters would probably be involved. So here's just some, to wrap up my section, uh, here's just some fun other wildfire trivia for you. Uh, in the United States, there was an average of 64,000 wildfires per year in the last 10 years, which seems like a lot. Um, mm-hmm. The top five years with the largest wildfire area burned since 1960 have all happened in the last 20 years. So we are increasing, and we will touch on that more in a bit. Some firefighters call them surface fires or ground fires. So a wildfire could also be referred to as those terms. Uh, Lightning strikes the earth over 100,000 times per day, and up to 20% of these can cause fires. Just a little fun fact for you. Huh. Yeah, lightning is one, uh, one of the big nature-caused ones. Yeah, no, I, I saw that cited, but I didn't realize that uh, so often, like, a single strike could be just, like... Uh, yeah, because it seems like most lightning strikes should happen in, like, the ocean or something. But it yeah. makes sense because it goes for tall objects. And what's a tall object? A tree. Uh, and here's my favorite bullet point of these bullet points. Some people call a huge wildfire a conflagration, which is literally a Dungeons and Dragons level nine sorcerer or wizard spell. In the game, you basically set your enemy on fire. They take damage for as long as the spell is in effect. And also people within a certain radius take damage, which is wild in and of itself. But in real life, conflagration, conflagration, that is such a hard word to say. In real life, conflagration is a big enough fire that can affect the local weather patterns. Oh, that's so wild. And the reason I included the D&D information is because the, like, the wild fantasy, like, spell version is less exciting than the actual definition of conflagration. And I thought that was cool. Yeah. And absolutely, I saw, because <laughs> I remember searching that term and I saw 5e pop up and I was like, okay, I have to include this because <laughs> I'm a nerd. Anyway, this was super interesting to research and I'm interested in our next segment, which is about why wildfires are both good and bad. So let's do that. Yeah. 
so we were originally going to set this up like a debate. I don't think we're going to actually d- debate it. I think we're just going to present the facts to you like we normally do. Yeah, no, I debate is it's that involves us taking a stance. But like the real stance here is good and bad. And that's yeah. not very interesting. Yeah. So obviously I've just touched on a lot of the destructive points. So I'll just highlight some um, extreme wildfires can affect people and obviously by burning down their houses and like their farms and whatnot and they are economically and socially disastrous yeah. uh suburban areas are affected by them bitch that's where the people are i wrote in my notes <laughs> <laughs> um bees i have as a pu- bullet point and we will talk about that in the endangered species but basically bees are affected by wildfires um, huh. Right now, we got plague and civil unrest, and fires are a thing we can control. Damn it, get rid of them. As uh, a- another against point, uh, fires also will change that soil chemistry and structure, so it can cause weathering of soil, which means it goes away, and uh, mm-hmm. makes soil not hold water as easily, which is bad for agriculture. Huh. And. And because it affects the sem- the chemistry and structure, it can end up causing landslides, which is even more destruction. So it's like you got your primary destruction, which is just everything burns, duh. And then you got your secondary destruction, which is like landslides and shit. Huh. So that's not great. And then obviously, these are the obvious things that I didn't need to cite. Uh, fires kill plants, they kill houses, they kill people, and they cost money to deal with. Yeah. Those are the oh. these those are the reasons that wildfires are bad. But why are they good, Lauren? Okay, so that was properly scary. But wildfires do have some benefits. Uh, they pr- they serve important functions in the life cycles of forests, and they provide ecological balance. So f- forest fires, uh, Ellie mentioned before that they clear out thick underbrush, which is like the layers of vegetation under the tree canopy, uh, like shrubs as well as other dead organic material. And that reduces the competition for new tree seedlings in the bed of ash it leaves. And ash is actually a pretty good fertilizer. Oh, like in uh, Avatar, where he picks up the acorn out of the ash. And is like, out of the fire, there will be a beautiful forest or whatever. Yeah, I mean, like, a- ash is, oh man, I looked up this up like ages ago. But I guess like ash is, I think it's high in nitrogen content. Which, if you have a fireplace, um, you can actually use your fireplace like in your house, you can use your fireplace ash as a uh, fertilizer for your garden. Supplemental. Actually, I think it's phosphorus because you use um, fire ash to make soap. And that is a phosphorus co- compound, I believe, to make lye. That makes sense. I did not bother looking this up super closely. I and- I know a lot about soap making since you've last heard from me, listeners. <laughs> oh, okay. Anyway, keep moving. Yep. Um, so, uh, no, nope, this is a soap podcast. <laughs> so uh, some of the other things that fires, that wildfires do is they, they heat the soil, which Ellie mentioned, it changes the soil chemistry. But uh, as it does that, it actually can help crack seed coats and induce germination um, for certain kinds of plants. So it allows those seeds to like, it tells the seeds, okay, it's time. Yeah. Go forth and make a plant. Yeah, it's, um, it's like... A lot of times that'll be like specific plant species, which are mm-hmm. obviously going to really depend on location. It it does help promote like that new growth in the forest just as a general rule. 
um, regardless, because it clears out a lot of like um, low lying vegetation and it makes room. Yeah. And it's pretty important that all of this is done periodically, both for new growth in the forest and for just the nutrient cycles of the soil and plants uh, themselves for um, the environment, for environments. So like small periodic fires are basically just house cleaning for the forest. Yeah, exactly. Um, It's like the problem arises when you have, you know, built up uh, fuel loadings. We'll get into that. (laughs) All right. So now we are moving on to movement three, which is just why, which I, I don't remember why I wrote that. (laughs) <laughs> oh, it's, it's it's because it's like why are why have fires like I, you mentioned before that like some of the most destructive fires have happened more recently, and I think that this was just why are they becoming such a problem? Why are the fires right now? such a, such a news breaking headline creating situation? Yeah, like why are we why are we seeing more? Why are we hearing that there's like more huge, massive, destructive ones basically? Right. Well, the first reason is climate change, believe it or not. (laughs) So I'm sure you're asking, well, how does climate change affect the fires? I thought it's just the increase of the temperature. I mean, that's just an overly simplistic, but it is what the average person thinks. So fire, the number of fires per year and the intensity of those fires has been increasing in recent decades. Uh, Mm -hmm. They spiked suddenly in the 1980s. Uh, they oh. started burn yeah they started burning longer more frequently and the wildfire seasons themselves got longer oh. uh, we've also noticed that the burned area so like the bl- amount of land burned has increased between the 1940s and the 1990s by a lot um, we are also noticing that increasing droughts due to climate change and also bad r- water resource management is not helping our ability to fight fires Neither is the increase in dry weather and climate due to climate change, which makes fu- um, which makes the fire fuel, aka things that catch on fire, such as wood, much easier to catch on fire. So basically, because of climate change, the whole countryside everywhere is just kindling because it's all drying out due to climate right. change. Yeah. Basically, the human-induced climate change is uh, making it more and more it's making fires more and more of a potential okay so it's like it's it's making them more likely and it's making them worse when they happen there's a number that fire scientists use to in just index and figure out how at risk an area is for fires uh okay it's called the kbdi or the keach byram drought index it's not important that you know what it means or what it is other than uh the firefighting like authorities are saying that this number is expected to increase by one so which just means that areas are more at risk and uh, moving up in the scale in (laughs) north america south america central asia southern europe southern africa and australia so you know that's not a big deal just most places where people live (laughs) yeah that's most of them (laughs) that's most places you could have just said the world at that point like it's it would have been places. easier to just say the places that it's not happening. Yeah. <laughs> Antarctica's probably fine. <laughs> I can't say that. Uh, 
So uh, one model projects that the amount of ground burned will increase by 54% by 2050, which is not far from now. That is 30 years from now uh, in the United States specifically. Uh, I do want to mention that that number that I just mentioned is an overall average. In the Rocky Mountains, y'all are actually looking at an area increase of uh, 175% burned per year by 2050. So have fun with that. Um, and so if, bad. Yeah, and if you're still like on the fence of like this isn't that bad, climate change is fine. Um, do consider the following, which is that the property damage, um, or rather, sorry, do consider the following, which is that the cost to fight these fires is rising, and in four years we spent two point four billion billion dollars fighting wildfires. Wait, in four okay, years, is that worldwide or is that U.S.? I believe that's the U.S., but okay. I'm not sure. That's a good question that I probably should have the answer to. So then that was the how climate change is affecting fires. But my question was, just as a scientist, are fires affecting climate change? And the answer is yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, well, yeah. yes. Um, fires do indeed add carbon to the atmosphere. They also make the air quality bad, as I'm sure California Twitter has already informed you or YouTube uh, last year during uh, the big part of quarantine where everyone was going outside with masks for, or right before quarantine when everyone was like, ah, wearing masks is terrible. And then they had to wear masks for a year. Oops. Um, (laughs) The amount of wildfire carbon emissions is also expected to double by 2050, which again is only in 30 years. I'm almost 30 now and it didn't take long to get here. (laughs) It's not, we will blink and it'll be 2050. So that's fun. I don't like this. Yeah, it's not great. So, Lauren, you're going to tell us about some bad practices that have led us to be in this situation. Yeah. So this is going to be U.S.-centric. So that's my general disclaimer to start out. Um, It is hard to find research on other parts of the world that aren't super specific to, like, this one providence in, like, Western China. It's so hard. It's so hard to not find <laughs> a things reason. that are like, this is a study on it, but like only for like the Black Forest in Germany. It's like, well, sick. Thanks, dude. Anyway. Yeah, it's uh, that's there's a reason we tend to stick with US centric stuff. It's because it's easier for us to find information on it. Yeah. So anyway, sorry. that's just part of the disclaimer. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. So this is just about. Uh, Yeah, so, like, part of why wildfires have gotten so bad is that there's just not good forest management practices here in in place here in the U.S. Um, So, essentially, the U.S. Forest Service's current fire management tactics put heavy emphasis on fire suppression. So, this is maybe best exemplified by the 10 a.m. policy of the U.S. Forest Service, which was codified in 1935. And that called for all fires to be under control by 10 a.m. the following day. That's, it's already, like, from a extreme wildfire standpoint, it's unreasonable. Like, you're not going to get it managed within that time frame. Well, I mean, but this, keep in mind, this is not extreme wildfires. This is yeah. all of them. All of them, all of them, all of them. This is I know, all I'm just fires in all knowledge. areas. <laughs> There's 60,000, what did you say earlier? 60,000 wildfires in a year. And, like freaking not all of them end up being extreme wildfire events 
Yet. So, but anyway, so the result of that policy is that the fuel loading in forests are now far above historic levels. So that's so, all that shit that we mentioned that is supposed to burn out every year through like routine small fires, because mm-hmm. that's how it no- normally works without human intervention. Mm-hmm. So that's all that fuel you were talking about. Okay. Yeah. So though the 10 a.m. policy was only in use until the mid 70s, current forest management practices in the U.S. still place like heavy, heavy emphasis on fire suppression. They haven't moved far from that thought process. Not really, no. So my favorite quote regarding this is actually from um, uh, someone named S.E. White, and they wrote it in 1920. And yes, this debate about forest management is that old. Yep. Quote, Keep firmly in mind that fires have always been in the forests centuries and centuries before we began to meddle with them. The only question that remains is whether, after accumulating kindling by 20 years or so of protection, we can now get rid of it safely. In other words, if we try to burn it out now, will we not get a destructive fire? We have caught the bear by the tail. Can we let it go? In this one matter of fire in the forests, the Forest Service has unconsciously veered to the attitude of defense of its theory at all costs. There is no conscious dishonesty, but there is plenty of human nature. That's a good quote. Yeah, I liked it a lot. And it's surprisingly still relevant considering it was first written in 1920. I feel like the phrase, there is no conscious dishonesty, but there is plenty of human nature is such a like poignant quote for all of our bad ecological practices. Like it's never out of malice towards the environment. It's just out of like, can I house people? Can I make it so we can exchange goods easily like yeah it's it's, never it's never i hate the environment except for for swamps where it kind of is because they hate these swamps but yeah it's (laughs) it's like a it's a doubling down on uh previous practices and values held in place um basically saying like you weren't wrong to have done those things in the first place it wasn't out of malice it was out of human nature out of just trying to do the best thing for people, but not necessarily for yeah. the world. And defending the things that you are already doing because yeah, you think that they too. are the best things. Yes. Because you're just trying to do your best. <laughs> yeah. So additionally, while there has been an increased emphasis in like the U.S. Forest uh, Service program, um, there's been an increased emphasis on fuel management. So like the physical clearing out of brush and the like. Uh, there is not nearly enough budget to actually cover the amount of labor involved in doing that when the fuel has been building up for over a hundred years in some God, areas. The number of, you know what, the number of jobs we could create just clearing out this brush for the entire western part of the United States. Except yeah. you, you know, lose a lot of people to snake bites and stuff because that is such an unreasonable job. Yeah. But to give you some idea of this, um, I, I found like, I found like one source so like these numbers are like very varied depending on like the area and stuff there hasn't been a lot of um large scale research into this but like sm- more small scale studies one study found that prescribed fire can can cost as little as like 125 dollars per he- hectare hectare um i say hectare whereas, hectare whereas mechanical thinning can cost about uh 2500 per hectare and Wow, that sure is a lot more. 
Yeah. Uh, to give some perspective, a hectare is about 2.5 times the size of an American football field. Gotcha. Gotcha. Always yeah. comes back to football fields. I, every time. I mean, it's whatever. We both did marching band in high school. That's what it is. I, well, <laughs> well, because I could tell you that a hectare is so named because it's 100 meters by 100 meters if you're looking at a square area. But like, that's not helpful for me to picture it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Anyway. I, you've been on a football field. You've watched football. You vaguely know what the size is. It makes sense. It's yep. just funny that that's like our <laughs> our podcast's way of describing area. Yeah. But And unfortunately, because fuel has been gathering with no interference, basically, for a century now, because these management practices have been in place since like the 1800s. Yep. Um, uh, so unfortunately... Because of that, setting prescribed fires in these areas is a pretty bad idea without doing any mechanical thinning prior. Right. So, yeah. Because if you light it now, you've, you're just basically just creating a conflagration at that point. Yeah. It's, it's not great. A difficult problem that we have created for ourselves. And so that's why there's still, there's still that emphasis on fire suppression because like all of this fuel has built up. So if it does catch, it, it's not going to just clear out in like a natural sort of, I don't, need, I don't know that this is a proper way to talk about it, but like a low burning forest fire. Like it's not going to do that. Like a, it's gonna... like a normal ass usual without human interference fire. Yeah. All right. So this, this section is labeled movement for how did indigenous people deal with wildfires before the colonizers came? so how how do we how do we deal with this if wildfires are both wildly destructive and incredibly important how are we meant to manage this so the same indigenous wisdom because they really before before white people came to the um western hemisphere the indigenous people basically managed this place like in a very interesting and different way yeah. So the same way that native people have been, yeah, they've been dealing with it in the same way for thousands of years, which is frequent controlled or prescribed burns. So these are wildfires that have been meticulously planned and performed. They have tight safety measures in place to ensure that burns are executed exactly as planned. So generally speaking, the idea is that you have these very frequent controlled burns, like more frequent than we even have wildfires now. Um because you're setting up it's like not only do you have the naturally occurring ones you have ones that you are setting on purpose like Mm -hmm. constantly um and so you end up with less fuel around overall that ends up leading to those really wild and destructive fires so it's like taking out the trash as often as possible so you don't get the stink basically yes um, so I know that we've we've been highly focusing on the forest management lens of this idea, and we're going to continue doing that. But I want to make something very clear, like just to view it through that lens is very much oversimplifying all of the ways that indigenous people use prescribed burns as a tool. Um, so some of the reasons that Native American populations executed burns included facilitating hunting, crop management, improving growth and yields, fireproofing areas pest management, warfare and signaling, economic oh, yeah. extortion, oh. clearing areas for travel, felling trees, and ceremonies. A whole bunch of reasons. 
yeah there's crop like there's management so- it makes sense and like hunting so you can ride through that because uh i read a book recently about indigenous history and uh apparently when um europeans first came they were astounded that they could ride their horses at full speed through the trees because uh the indigenous people like kept them thinned enough out but still mm-hmm. like old growth and they would also do all those prescribed burns so it was actually relatively safe to ride your horse at full speed that's so interesting right yeah but anyway, so like, so there's a lot of varied uses for fire. Um, and with that, um, there's a lot of knowledge and understanding of the specific land and that has to go into using fire as a tool um, and using it well. So to fully understand like the threats, the impacts and the benefits, a proficient indigenous fire community has to be familiar with climatic cycles, ignition sources, fire behavior, as well as many factors specific to the landscape, like the topography and the natural cycle of the vegetation. So, and all of this is informed by having so many generations living on the same lands and observing fires. Honestly, the amount of scientific knowledge, like even if it, they, they uh, people don't consider it science and they consider it like part of a tradition or cultural, it's still like the amount of cumulative sci- Uh, scientific knowledge that these communities had before you know our ancestors tried to genocide them uh, was astounding they had so much knowledge yeah just about the land so like unfortunately due to current management practices aka fire suppression Mm. um and because they've been so heavily emphasized and they've been in place for like over 100 years in a lot of areas in the u.s in a lot of places, there's, like, this huge loss of knowledge surrounding traditional burning practices. Right. Um, because, like, those traditional burning practices, they're not in place anymore, really. Yes. Anyway. And also, a lot of Native people have been kicked off their land, so they've lost that connection. Yeah. Well, I mean, even then, even in, like, the lands that that they currently live in, like, they don't, um, their fire response tends to be informed by current um fire response practices um of yes of our government uh, of of the yeah of the u.s government which is to emphasize suppressing the fire because yes um anyway but contemporary researchers have done their best trying to document and preserve what knowledge still exists but it's no longer it's not as simple as forest management agencies deciding to immediately incorporate historical burning practices to current fire management regimes it's it's not that easy it's not that simple um there's already a lot of that stuff built up yeah there's yeah because there's so much built up and if even if they were to put those into place like there's so much dead brush that's just sitting yes. there um like we it talked really about just before. it really you just can't... does come back to that doesn't it yeah. I feel like we've said that like six times. It's just the built up brush. It's fucking everything up. I I, yeah, I know. It it's a little repetitive, but like that's really what it comes down to is that like we've just had these not ideal forest practices in place for over a hundred years and it's hard to recover and it's hard to get the money to recover yes. from that. So all of this said, I wanted to leave off on a quote from Beth Rose Middleton Manning, who's a professor of Native American studies at the University of California, Davis. Quote, I think it's really important that we don't think about traditional burning as what information can we learn from Native people and then exclude people and move on with non-Natives managing the land. But 
that Native people are at the forefront and leading. Yes, land back. Which is to say that we shouldn't just be saying, like, what knowledge can we learn from them? Steal. And then immediately shut Native people out of the conversation once yeah. we have that knowledge. No, I, I agree. And, and that's why I say land back, because obviously they were better at managing it than we are. And by we, I mean the wealthy elite. I obviously have nothing to do with it. Yeah, it's it's a very complicated question overall. Yeah. Um, because Isn't it always? It's, yeah, it's going to take a lot of forethought and people who actually care about like the ecosystem need to be in charge. Yeah, and it, it's... <laughs> I mean, there's like a lot that we didn't even like get into where it's like, like, because there's things you can do with like, you can manage the underbrush in specific areas that are more prone. um, And you can try and control it like that. But then you don't get like any of like the ecological benefits of the wildfire still. Yeah, the potash. Yeah. And if you're and if you're clearing out specific targeted areas, then like the areas that aren't being targeted, well, you're still not doing anything for those ecologically. So it's a very complicated question. And it's, you would burn through, like the the current federal budget is like, it's, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And you could easily burn through this to like, just try to manage like even like a couple of of the large forests. It's- yeah so complicated let's take the money from the military spending and push it somewhere else (laughs) is my thought process but anyway that's politics at that point so thank you for that incredibly sad and frustrating segment well it was less sad than the numbers but you want you want to talk about a cute endangered species not invasive endangered yeah i think i'd like that yeah. So the endangered species this week is the green carpenter bee. Uh, so some fun facts about the green carpenter bee. It lives only in Australia, uh, in the area near Sydney and on Kangaroo Island. And it only lives in conservation areas, which are just areas specifically set aside by the government to conserve wildlife. Um, in all other parts of Australia, this species is extinct. Great. So, so it's doing pretty badly. Uh, carpenter bees, by the way, are specifically bees that burrow into um, wood to make their nests. Yeah. We had an infestation of those in our house. <laughs> Aw. So, no, I mean, not these. Not these, because they're endangered. And also, I don't live in Australia. <laughs> oh, that makes recording so hard. Um, <laughs> so they are... Uh, let's talk about their chef's kiss. Aesthetic. So they're okay. not... They're not the typical yellow and black that you'd expect from a bee. They are actually more beetle-like. It's like a beetle and a bee had a child. They are green, and they have like this metallic shine that shifts to purple a little bit. And they also have gold parts on their legs and parts of their abdomen and head. They are actually called the jewel of nature for its colors. And they are also pretty big they're one of the largest bees in southern australia at two centimeters which is like about an inch well yeah it's pretty big a little bigger than an inch yeah so for pollination they're a buzz pollinating species which means when they go up to the flower they like vibrate and that vibrates the pollen off of little stalks and out of the flower onto them yeah there's uh there's different types of pollination fun fact that's one of them buzz pollination 
Uh, many plants rely 100% on buzz pollination as opposed to the other kinds. Uh, for example, the velvet bush, uh, the chocolate lily, and the guinea flower. Um, oh. And introduce and fun fact about that is introduced honeybees. Like if we if carpenter bee was to go extinct, this specific one. Crap, what's it called? I've already forgotten. Green carpenter bee. <laughs> wow, not even hard to remember. Good job, Ellie. The green carpenter bee. If they were, let's say they went extinct, if we introduced honeybees to try to take care of uh, what they were doing, those bees wouldn't know what to do because it's a different type of pollination than what they do. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. So, let's talk about their status. They were already going extinct before. So in 1906, they were declared extinct on mainland South Australia. And in 1938, they were declared extinct in Victoria, which is a uh, state of Australia. They were hit hard again recently in the most recent fires that we've mentioned. That hopefully, if you uh, don't live under a rock, you know that Australia has been suffering from the wildfires. Um, they're especially vulnerable to fires because they nest in dead wood. They are carpenter bees. And every time Ooh. there's a fire, the bees have to find new homes. And they're really, really picky about their houses. Oh. So their preferred nesting plants have either burned and they can't obviously access them because they're now made of ash. Or those plants aren't mature enough to nest in yet. The wood they like to nest in has to mature for 30 years before the bees will move in. Oh, my God. They're so picky. They're like a child who won't eat, like, chicken nuggets. What? So <laughs> if the offspring don't mature before the nest burns, the adults won't live long enough to lay eggs again. So, like, oh. if they lose if they lose their brood, they're fucked. Oh. Oh, yeah. that's bad. Because the, the adults don't live long enough to fuck again. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. Um, they need access to flowers year-round as well. So if those burn, then, like, what are they going to eat? What are they going to pollinate that's so complicated yeah it's a really it's a it's an issue so how bad could it be now i couldn't exactly find um population statistics because a lot of these nests are on private property um, which which makes it hard yeah it makes it hard for scientists to get a real good reading on what's happening but 80 percent of the sydney habitat has been destroyed by the wildfires recently it's a big percent it's not great It's it's really bad so you're probably really down right now. Isn't there any hope? Well, the good news is Australia really cares about these bees. Um, conservationists are making homes for bees in these nesting stocks that they're strategically putting around the flowers that they like. So they, um, they're basically engineering, because they're so picky, they're engineering uh, little houses for them that they will like. Oh. And the good news is there's one nesting material called grass trees. I don't know what that is um, because I don't live in Australia. <laughs> Uh, but the good news is that grass trees tend to flourish after fires. They uh, tend to uh, do really well because once um, a fire burns an area, you get a certain succession of plants that will come back in afterward. Right. And this is one of them. Oh. So a combination of these artificial nesting stocks that humans are providing for them and the natural nesting material will be available after the fire. So there is some hope. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Australia is huge. <laughs> it's really hard yeah. to do science there is my understanding. Because it's just so big. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like it would be hard to do there. Yeah. So that yeah. is our episode. I hope you enjoyed uh, learning about wildfires. I I can't say so... I... I can't say I enjoyed it, but I did learn a lot. Yeah. This was really long. And, like, we didn't even talk about, like, the impacts of wildfires on invasive species. Because, like, that's a whole question, too. God, that would be its own freaking episode. It's... <laughs> Yeah, Let us it's know like, by tweeting at us if you are interested in that. 
Maybe someone will tweet at us now. The only the only account we ever in, in interact with is like a disabled in STEM account. Yeah, that's <laughs> fine. Whatever. Oh, yeah, we, we, we exchange uh, tweets occasionally. But yeah, thanks for listening. Um, you can find our our logo designer, uh, Tyler C. Hurst. Hurst is spelled H-U-R-S-T on uh, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, let's see. We got Kevin McLeod. He wrote our our uh, music and he also wrote the music for every youtube video that you've ever watched um yeah our yeah love love that the whistle one so good basically watch any jenna marbles video and you will hear kevin mcleod's stuff or listen to our intro and outro again and our accounts are uh at trees speaking uh so t-r-e-e-s-s-p-e-a-k-i-n-g on twitter and instagram our Instagram is not active at all because I cannot figure out for the life of me what to post on there. But our Twitter is occasionally active when I remember it exists. Uh, we also have an email because <laughs> it's all me. We also have an email uh, for the trees.pod at gmail.com if you want to suggest topics or just tell us that we're doing good or whatever. Yeah. That uh, is to say yeah. also if you interact with us on any of those things, we will see it. <laughs> we will respond to you at this point. <laughs> we, no one resp- no one talks to us we will respond to you <laughs> uh, I, I just wanted to say that it's like just because we're not active like we do get notifications so yeah I, I check it at least once a week and I will see it and I will respond to you so yeah if you are interested in suggest if you want to learn more things and you want to suggest a topic please reach out to us we will probably do it yeah um, so yeah that's our show thanks for listening and I love you Love you too. <laughs> Lauren, I was talking to the listener, not you, but I also love you. <laughs> All right, I'm going to stop recording now. All right, bye. Bye.